Amen. Let's all stay standing together. I'm going to read the scripture for us this morning, and it comes from Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2, and then Matthew 7, verses 28 to 29. So please turn there with me. Matthew 5, 1 to 2 says this. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. In Matthew 7, 28 to 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is God's word. Amen. Go ahead and keep your Bibles out and open to Matthew chapter 5. This morning uh, we begin uh, what is no doubt the most famous collection of Jesus' teachings in the Bible. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, as it's been called, which is a description of the lifestyle of those who belong to the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. So many of the sayings that we find here in these three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, uh, are known and loved throughout the world by both Christians and non-Christians alike. I mean, so if you're here this morning, whether you are here and you don't know hardly anything about Christianity, you're just kind of here observing and trying to understand and check things out, or whether you're here because you've been walking with Jesus for a lifetime, Who among us hasn't heard phrases like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, you are the salt of the earth, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No one can serve two masters. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. Judge not, lest you be judged. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened. So whatever you wish others to do to you, do also to them. You know, these words have captured imaginations throughout civilization for millennia. These words that are so familiar to us, not just because we hear them in church, but we hear them in the culture around us even. Uh, but more than just the words, the ethical vision of this sermon, the, the moral lifestyle that it shows us, is also known and celebrated by both believers and non-believers. President Harry Truman uh, is attributed as saying, I do not believe there is a problem in this country or the world today which could not be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And similarly, uh, when the great Hindu leader and pacifist Gandhi was asked what he thought would solve the problems between Great Britain and India, he took a Bible and turned to the fifth chapter of Matthew and said, When your country and mine shall get together on the teachings laid down by Christ in this Sermon on the Mount, we shall have solved the problems not only for our countries, 
but those of the whole world. The moral vision of this sermon, the lifestyle it shows us of what life should look like is very powerful. And yet, it's not a moral vision for humanity in general. Uh, It's a very particular vision of life lived under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. Life as part of God's kingdom. Life in utter submission to Jesus' authority as king. Uh, So often, uh, the way that so many treat this passage is they focus on the ethics of the kingdom... So the moral vision, what it teaches us about how to live, focus on the ethics of the kingdom without connecting them to the king who gives them out of his own authority and power. So we make the Sermon on the Mount about us. In other words, we hijack its vision and use it for our own, our own definition of social justice, our own version of peace and shalom. Uh, which invariably means at some point we have to throw out the things in it that don't fit our vision, that, that we don't like. Maybe it's the teaching on divorce or on lust or on judgment and so on. And what we're left with in the end neither resembles the sermon's actual content nor respects the authority of the one who gave it. So we hijack the sermon for our own purposes. In other words, we want many of the values of the kingdom, but we don't want the king. Now, there's another side to that coin. Those who want the king, but who don't really want the kingdom teaching. The kingdom values the moral vision of life in his kingdom. So they like Jesus, but they don't want to live like Jesus. You know, maybe it's because we look at these words and we know that we're utterly incapable of obeying them. And so, you know, we read this and we just feel guilty. And so we got to find a way to either soften the, the edge or, or, downplay some of these things or maybe we think that you know god really isn't that holy and so sin therefore isn't that sinful and this is all nice but it's not that big a deal and so we don't really care about whether our life follows this pattern and so we we find ourselves again sharpening excuse me softening the sharp edges or ignoring the hard teachings or maybe even just kind of relegating the whole thing to a different time and a different people so it no longer applies. But even here, we're falling into the trap of disconnecting the vision of life for this kingdom from the king who has arrived. You know, just before this passage, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus came announcing, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. The kingdom is at hand because the king is at hand. And if the king is here, then he has the authority to tell us how to live as members of his kingdom. There's no following the king without living out the vision of his kingdom. And there can be no kingdom living without utter submission to the king. As author and pastor Sinclair Ferguson says, living out the Sermon on the Mount can never be divorced from a right relationship to Jesus Christ. It can never be divorced from a right relationship to Jesus Christ. And so before we can say anything about the message of the sermon, which is what we're going to be focusing on the next couple of months, going through Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, 
before we can say anything about the actual message of it, we need to first reckon with the messenger. Who is giving us this sermon? This king who speaks as God. And so, as we're going to see, living out the Sermon on the Mount, on, on the Mount means fundamentally bowing to the authority of Jesus. Bowing to the authority of Jesus. So let's pray and let's look uh, at how this, this sermon teaches us about who Christ is. Lord, we want to hear your voice this morning. It's not my voice. It's not any of our voices. We want to hear your voice. We want to see this world through your eyes. And that means, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to come to be with us and to change our hearts. And so I pray that as we look into this passage, would you open our hearts and our eyes to see you more clearly? And would you change us to look and live more like you, Lord? Because you are a king who's worthy for us to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does the Sermon on the Mount teach us about who Jesus is, the one giving the sermon? Well, we heard, uh, read earlier what we might call the bookends of the Sermon on the Mount. The first two verses and the last two verses. And uh, if there's one theme highlighted even in those bookends, it's this, the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. It's highlighted in the beginning and the end and the as we'll see in the weeks ahead, everywhere in between. Look again with me at Matthew 5, 1 through 2. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, the imagery used to describe Jesus' posture of teaching, going up the mountainside and then sitting, suggests a certain weightiness to what he's about to say. Uh, for instance, mountains are kind of a big deal in the Gospel of Matthew. There's five mountains and something pretty significant happens on each one of them. Each time a mountain is mentioned. We saw last week in chapter 4, Jesus was taken up to a high mountain in the temptation. Uh, later, we see the transfiguration in chapter 17 happening on a mountain. What we call the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is teaching in Matthew 24, happening on the Mount of Olives, and then the Great Commission, again, being given from a mountain. So when when Jesus goes up a mountain, you better listen in the Gospel of Matthew. Something important is happening. But the second thing, he sits. Now, he just went up a mountain. Of course he's going to sit. He's tired, right? Well, sitting, again, suggests an authoritative teaching posture. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says how the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses. In other words, they teach from that seat of authority. Uh, there's a certain authority to their teaching role. Even today, in the Catholic tradition, when the Pope gives an authoritative pronouncement, it's said to be ex cathedra, from the seat of his authority. And so his posture at the beginning suggests that what we're about to hear is something that carries authority, significance. But if you're not convinced yet, look at the reaction of the hearers when Jesus is done. The last two verses of the sermon, chapter 7, 28 through 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had 
authority, not as the teachers of the law. So what kind of authority does Jesus have? What kind of authority? And why should we pay special attention to him? And what's at stake in whether or not we recognize his authority and whether or not we obey? Well, in the sermon, we see Jesus' authority displayed in two key ways. And the first is that Jesus is a new Moses. Jesus is a new Moses. And we've mentioned uh, in previous weeks how Jesus relives ancient Israel's story in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Israel was God's special covenant people. In the Old Testament, God saved them for himself. He made them his special possession. He made a special deal with them that he would be their God, that they would be his people. He called it a covenant. But just, you know, we've seen how just like Adam in the garden, uh, Israel was unfaithful to their covenant with God. They turned their back on him and brought on themselves the curses of that covenant. In contrast to both Adam and Israel, Matthew has shown us that Jesus is the faithful son. He's faithful to the father. He keeps his word. He does his father's will. And much of the early chapters of Matthew show Jesus reliving Israel's story, succeeding where they failed in order to be the faithful son who brings Israel back to God and brings the nations to God with them. So, for instance, and this should all just be refresher at this point, but in Matthew 2, just as Israel sojourned into Egypt and then returned to Canaan, so Jesus sojourns down to Egypt and comes back to Canaan. We saw that in Matthew 2. Just as Israel's deliverer Moses was saved from a tyrant's mad uh, rage of, of killing all of the babies his age, so just as Moses was saved from that fate, Jesus was saved from the exact same fate when Pharaoh, or excuse me, when uh, Herod uh, went on his rampage. Just as Israel was born as a nation through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus begins his ministry through the waters of baptism in chapter 3. As Israel was tested for 40 years in the wilderness. Last week we saw Jesus tested for 40 days in the wilderness. Succeeding precisely where Israel failed. And if we keep following that comparison, when we come to chapter 5 and we watch Jesus ascend the mountainside and begin to give instruction about what life should look like in God's kingdom, it is unmistakable that Matthew wants us to see Jesus as a new Moses figure. Here is God's prophet once again giving God's law, a new vision for how God's people should live as members of his new kingdom. Not that it's so much a different law, but a new way of living out the vision of God's law from the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's not making the Old Testament obsolete. He's not saying it doesn't matter anymore. He's saying that the way you live it out is changing now that I'm here. Okay? And we'll look more closely at that in a few weeks. So as Jesus sits down on the mountainside to teach, he teaches in full accordance with the Old Testament scriptures, the law of Moses, functioning as a new Moses, a new giver of God's law. That's the first way we see his authority. 
There's a second way. And it goes far beyond functioning as a new Moses. The, the Jesus we meet in the Sermon on the Mount is much more than a new Moses because he speaks not just for God or on behalf of God. He speaks as God. Jesus speaks as God. Even when Moses taught God's people, he taught as a prophet. He had no authority of his own. He was the greatest prophet, no authority of his own. He was a prophet who says, thus says the Lord. Moses never spoke out of his own authority. Jesus does something very different. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5. And notice in, in his teaching from verses 21 to 48, we're not going to read that whole section today, but I just want to point out a couple of things in how Jesus introduces what he has to say about the proper way to walk with God. Verse 21. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And we see that pattern again in 31 through 32, in 33 and 34. 38 and 39, and 43 through 44. Jesus does not give God's law like the prophets of old, but as one who speaks as God himself, I say to you. Those are very bold words. As one pastor puts it, he opened his mouth not merely to speak from or about the scriptures, but in fact to claim authority of interpretation and application over them and even fulfillment of them. Jesus speaks as God. Now, this is what the crowds were amazed at at the end of the, you know, the end of chapter 7, 20 and 29, when they were marveling at how Jesus teaches with authority, unlike their scribes. Now, the scribes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in early Judaism never taught from their own authority. Uh, not only did they have to appeal to the authority of Scripture, they were constantly citing what other rabbis had said about this and about that. Rabbi so-and-so says this, but Rabbi so-and-so says that. They never had, they never taught out of their own authority. Jesus doesn't do this. He teaches with the authority, his own authority is God. Now, imagine if, if I stood up here and I said something like, you know, you've heard it said in Genesis 3, and in Ephesians 5, so-and-so. But I say to you, what would you think? Who is this nut? I mean, this guy thinks he's on the same par or even above Scripture. That's what Jesus did, though. That's what Jesus did. He spoke as if he had written the book in the first place. Because he did. You know, it's not without reason that when John introduces Jesus in his gospel, he introduces him as the word of God. Jesus speaks with an authority greater than any prophet because he speaks as God. We see that unique authority illustrated in a second way in this sermon, in how he speaks with unique insight into how we should relate to the Heavenly Father. 
to his heavenly father. He seems to know something about the heavenly father no one else knows. He speaks directly on his behalf. Um, you know, chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. Uh, he teaches us how to pray to his heavenly father. He knows what the father's looking for in our prayer life when he gives us the Lord's prayer, chapter 6. He reveals the loving and compassionate heart of the Father. Chapter 7, verse 11. If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Only Jesus knows, fully knows the will of his Father. Only Jesus, because he is united with the Father and with the Spirit as the eternal Son. He speaks with authority as God. Third, we see that Jesus is a new Moses in how he presents himself as the judge of all humanity in chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Look at those verses with me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Prophets don't make those kinds of claims. Good moral teachers who are just human don't say things like, at the end of the age, you're going to stand before me and I'm going to judge you whether or not you can enter eternal life based on whether or not I know you. That's not a good moral teacher saying. They don't do that. Jesus' vision for kingdom living is not just follow these principles and life will be better. It is, bow before me as king and judge. That's what he's saying. So, he speaks with authority as God. He knows the Father's will intimately. He speaks as the judge at the end of the age. Finally, we see his divine authority in the final verses of the sermon. In 7.24-27, through 27, go ahead and look at those with me. Where Jesus speaks as one in whose words we find wisdom and and life, wisdom and life. Verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, not just everyone who hears the Bible, everyone who hears the Father's, everyone who hears these words of mine, he says, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Again, good teachers don't say things like, you know, the whole course of your life depends on 
listening to and obeying my words. Good human teachers don't talk that way. Only God can talk that way. Only God can say things like that. Jesus is the king who speaks as God. And obeying this Sermon on the Mount means first recognizing his authority. It means recognizing his authority. So how do we respond to Jesus' authority as king? Well, first we have to get over the idea of submitting to anybody's authority other than our own. That's the first roadblock. Now, for many of us, uh, the idea of authority is, is simply offensive. Um, you know, maybe it's because we've seen authority abused. Maybe it's because people have abused their authority and have wounded us through that. And there's lots of reasons. Um, maybe it's because we have a hard time trusting those in authority over us. But for most of us, I think, it's the simple idea of someone else telling us what to do that we find offensive. You know, someone else telling us what's right and what's wrong, what's significant and meaningful and worthwhile and what's empty and destructive. We think that freedom is the ability to do whatever we want. Whatever we think will fill us, satisfy us. And any kind of authority outside of ourselves is a threat to that freedom. That's our default mode as humans. We want to be in charge. We want to be in charge. Well, what we fail to realize in that is that the freedom and life and meaning and and pleasure, all of that that we're looking for, that we think we can get by just knocking off all other would-be kings off the throne and taking the seat ourselves... That's not where we find it. We find it in reality in the glad surrender and the joyful submission to the one who rightfully belongs on that throne and who alone is able to fulfill the responsibilities of that throne. You want a king who's wise enough and holy enough and powerful enough and gracious enough and merciful enough to do what is right in all circumstances in all circumstances and at all times. You're not that kind of king. You're going to let yourself down, and so will everyone else other than Jesus. He's the king. And it's in submission to his authority that we find the protection, the security, and the freedom we're looking for in this life. So how do we respond to it? Well, you can really only do one of two things. You can either take Jesus' authority... Or you can leave it. What you cannot do is take the Sermon on the Mount without Jesus or take Jesus without the Sermon on the Mount. You can't do those things. First, you can take Jesus' authority. You can recognize what Matthew's telling us, that he is the king who speaks as God and who therefore demands our allegiance, which means you can both take Jesus and his vision of life in the kingdom. But first, you have to take Jesus. You have to take Jesus first. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of life as a member of God's kingdom. It doesn't tell us very much about how to enter that kingdom. It's talking about what it looks like for those who are members of it to live. But how do you enter that kingdom. We need the rest of Matthew's gospel. We need the rest of the Bible to help fill out that picture. 
Because you can't follow the ways of the kingdom unless you first know the king. Later in Matthew 19, when Jesus is describing how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, his disciples protest. Well, who then can be saved? Jesus answers, with this, excuse me, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, God is the one who does the work of salvation. God is the one who does the work of salvation in our hearts. It's through trusting in him and his work that we're able to enter the kingdom of heaven and become his child and servant. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. It's news about what God has done to deliver us from sin, to rescue us to himself. It's not advice about live this way and then you can get in. That's not what the gospel is. It's news. It's what God has done through Jesus in living for us and dying for us on the cross and giving us his righteousness and taking away from us our sin. And it's through faith, through trusting in Jesus, that we take hold of him as king and savior. So you have to first know the king. You have to trust the king and be reconciled with him through faith. But if you take Jesus as Savior and King, then you're also called to follow the ways of his kingdom. The idea that you can trust Jesus, but then it makes no difference how you live after that, is completely foreign to biblical Christianity. We are called to follow Christ, not in order to pay him back, or not to make it up to him. That's not what's going on there. But out of joyful gratitude and thankfulness for what he's done. Not out of your own effort and strength. You know, just try harder, tighten the belt one more notch and get after it. No, but out of the strength that God himself supplies by the Holy Spirit. It's a spirit-empowered hard work. Something God does through us. Not because we're saved by works. We're not saved by works. But because we are saved for works. God rescues us that we might follow him and live lives that bring honor to him and glory to him as his faithful children. And what does that look like? That's why he teaches us about the kingdom here in this sermon. We're going to take a closer look at that teaching throughout the next few months. What does life lived under the reign of Jesus look like? But that's the first option, to take Jesus, to take his authority, and then by God's grace and by the strength of his spirit, to take his vision for kingdom life, to follow him, to follow him. That's the first response to his authority. The other option is to leave Jesus' authority, uh, to, to reject him as king, to disagree with his claim, maybe even to deny that he exists, and then to submit yourself to some authority other than him. And sadly, many people do choose that route. And if, you're, if, if that's where you're at, I want you to know I am so glad you're here. You don't have to put on a show for us and pretend like you, you know, you're submitting or something like that. You don't have to put on a show. We want everybody to be able to be honest about who they are and where they're at with these things. And we want to love you and know you just the same. Um, in our love, we do want you to meet Jesus because we believe that's what's best for you, but you don't have to 
pretend. Uh, if you've got questions about this or if you have problems with what's being said here. But if you do leave Jesus, you need to know that you cannot with integrity claim any part of his law for your purposes. You cannot claim the vision of the kingdom and reject the king at the same time. With all due respect, Truman and Gandhi were both dead wrong when they suggested that we could achieve world peace if everyone would just obey the Sermon on the Mount, the tenets and principles there. They wanted a kingdom without a king. It doesn't work that way. First, because no one in and of themselves actually obeys this by themselves. We can't do it, even if we wanted to. We are sinners. We are rebels against God. We take advantage of each other. And apart from knowing Jesus and being strengthened by his spirit, we cannot obey this sermon, at least not from our hearts. But second, without a king to give instruction and to judge those who obey that instruction, there can be no kingdom. There can be no kingdom living. No moral system can even exist. You can't have a kingdom without a king. And those who try are simply replacing this king with some other cheap substitute, whether it's themselves or someone else. So you can leave the king, but that means leaving the kingdom. It means that these, this vision of life doesn't apply to you. And just so you know, a decision to leave Jesus' authority doesn't actually mean you're no longer answerable to it. You know, one could say, I reject the authority of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And if you get in your car and you drive 95 miles an hour down the pike and you get pulled over, that rejection of authority, you may believe it, it doesn't matter. You're going to pay, you're going to get a ticket, you're going to have to pay the fine because that authority is real whether you like it or not. And so even if you reject Jesus' authority, if it's true, you will still answer to it. What we read earlier in Matthew 7 of all men and women standing before Jesus in the end will apply whether you recognize his authority now or not. So you can take the king or you can leave him. But you cannot stay neutral. You cannot continue believing that maybe Jesus was a good man or a nice role model or a moral teacher or a prophet, but he wasn't king and God. C.S. Lewis um, who spent his early adult life as an atheist and came, as he says, kicking and screaming to Christ, put this reality in a very memorable way. Some of you will have heard this before. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg I believe they ate poached eggs this morning down in Sunday school. Not sure why, but he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Those are the options. Jesus is the king who speaks as God. Take him or leave him, but I plead with you to take him. To take him and find that there's no greater freedom, there's no 
greater security, no greater satisfaction, no greater love than to know and follow Jesus as King and Savior and to to experience life as it's meant to be lived in his kingdom. That's what he made you to do. That's what he saves us to do. And he is the one who's worthy of our honor and glory as king. So let's pray together. Lord, we recognize that there are some hard words in this sermon and some hard realities that even if I'm honest in my heart, I bump up against. Lord, there's so much selfishness in my heart. There's so many plans I have for my life. There's so many things I want to go my way to begin to submit and to surrender to you and to your authority. Whereas I totally agree with that intellectually, my heart is still holding out in many ways. And I pray, I recognize, Lord, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one responding that way. Lord, our hearts, because of the fall, because of sin, are set on ourselves. They're set on the kingdom of this world that you're rescuing us from. So, Jesus, I pray that as we reflect on your passage this morning and as we look at this sermon over the next few months, would you do the surgical work you need to do in our hearts to remove from us the selfishness, the greed, the sin, the self-protectiveness, the arrogance, the pride, the vindication and bitterness, all of the things that cloud our hearts and that plague us that don't look like you or don't look like your kingdom. May we see in Jesus we have one who has authority and yet who is merciful to know us and love us and change us. And I pray, God, that for those here this morning who do not yet know Christ, would you do that surgical work now? Would you remove the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh? I pray, Lord, for those who do know you, but our hearts are, are becoming our hearts are becoming calcified. Lord, would you cleanse and restore? Would you give us a vision of yourself? Show us your beauty. Show us your majesty. Show us your glory that we might worship you. You are the king who overcomes, who is worthy of of all our honor and praise. So we ask that you would be glorified in our hearts, Lord.